When I was in the fourth grade, I was called into the principal's office one particular day to discuss a theft. And the afternoon before, I had sat at a table in the cafeteria after school with one of my sixth grade friends, as many children do, awaiting parents to come for pickup. But on that day, on the table in front of us lay two quarters that didn't belong to either one of us. And he asked, are those yours? I said, no. Are they yours? No. I wonder whose they are. And we talked about that for a little while. And after a a period of time, uh, we just assumed that the rightful owner might not be coming. And Jay took both of those quarters and put them in his pocket and went home with them. And I remember, and I think he even gave me the opportunity to, you know, to split the treasure. Uh, and I declined. And, and I remember thinking to myself, ah, I, I'm just not un- uncomfortable taking those quarters because they're not mine. But he obviously had no qualms about that. But I'll never forget how stunned I was the next day in the principal's office to hear her say to me, you may not have taken the quarters for yourself, but by not speaking up, and suggesting to Jay that they be taken to the office so the rightful owner could claim them, you actually contributed to this. And I thought to myself, I didn't steal the quarters. But I remember at that moment coming under the weight of the principal's authority and and over time recognizing that there's far more to keeping God's law, thou shalt not steal, or even the bigger law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, than just saying, you know, I'm not participating in the actual act. Now, I know some of you might say, oh, come on, give give your fourth grade self a break. I want to be careful about that because many of us, would try to live our lives formulating our our own system by which we would live and calibrating our consciences according to that. And God's law is ever before us. There's a similar kind of thinking that Paul exposes in Romans 2. The the kind of thinking that I was manifesting on that day that as, as long as my hands weren't on the quarter, what my friend wanted to do was his business, and, and I didn't really need to look out for the interests of my neighbor, whoever that was, who had left the two quarters behind. And Paul in Romans 2, after making the devastating case against all humanity that we looked at last week from Romans 1, 18 through 32, where he states emphatically that all are under God's condemnation. There's not one of us without excuse before God. He now narrows his argument in chapter 2 in order to address the really religious Now, it would have specifically been Jews, as we'll note in our study of chapter 2 today, but it broadens out even beyond the Jews. This would broaden to any group that is hyper-religious, you might say. Those in particular who would look upon that vice list of 22 sins that we considered last week, and that was long and extensive, and I don't think any of us escaped that list, did we? But for those who feel like they did who legalistically look at the 22 and go, nope, 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 nope. I'm good. Paul has a different word. And it's good for those of us who would look at others around us, as I was doing on that particular day in fourth grade, saying, I'm not a thief like Jay. I'm not unrighteous like those non-religious people. I'm not a pagan like those idolaters on the other side of the world. 
as a matter of fact, I'm a really good person. And compared to 9 billion others on planet Earth, I think I'm doing just fine. I want you to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans 2, and we're actually going to take time to read the entire chapter. It'll only take about five minutes. I think it's important for us to hear the Word of God, and then we're going to pray and then dig into the book. Romans 2, beginning in verse 1. Follow along, please, as I read. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, it is with the expectation that you will speak to us by your spirit through this authoritative word. It is with the prayer that you will illuminate our minds that we may understand the truth and that you will motivate our spirits that we may respond in faith and that you will move us so that we will obey and honor you as you call us to respond to this word. We ask for help in every way and pray that you would honor your word even as you honor the Son. In Jesus' name, amen. By quick review, in Romans 1, we, we looked at those two verses over the last couple of weeks, really, that encapsulate the theme of Paul's letter to the Romans. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You remember, contextually, there had been reason to be ashamed. It was not a popular thing to be a Christian. Many had already given their lives more wood for this faith. But here is the particular reason. He says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is a record of what God the Father has done by the power of God the Spirit through God the Son to save sinners like us. It is the record of his work. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says it's God's power. It's God's action, if you will. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And so this gospel is all about God's righteousness. And then he quotes Habakkuk. That's the part that's in quotation marks. The righteous shall live by faith. And then from there he enters into this argument, if you will, like walks us into a courtroom, puts us in the seat of the defendant and says, now, Let's talk about whether or not you and I are really righteous in ourselves. And so chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, remember, is that whole argument where Paul is just basically trying to pull the legs out from under our arguments to say, I'm righteous, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm well-intentioned, I'll be okay. And so that's where last week we had looked through chapter 1 and just the devastating argument that God ultimately through Paul puts forward to say your ungodliness and your righteousness is already under wrath and there's greater wrath coming and that's a fearful thing. Now it's easy to look at chapter 1 and say well it must be talking about the non-religious people, right? Because I mean they're the ones who don't really care about God's law, God's word or you know living a good moral life kind of but no. Not fully. And so now chapter 2, he turns the, the light of the gospel onto those who say, well, we're the really religious ones. And that's all with the view of, of pushing us into chapter 3, as you can see. And I kind of want to keep the big picture in view here, that in chapter 3, he's just going to run through scripture after scripture, bringing the Old Testament into it and, and even uh, setting his conclusions over it, that there's no one among us, not one of us, is righteous in himself or herself. So I've told you that in many ways we are in a really dark and gloomy section of the gospel, but it's dark and gloomy for a reason, because until you recognize that as Paul begins to say in chapter 2, God's judgment is inescapable, you won't be looking for a way out. 
You'll think you're fine and just continue to walk this dark and gloomy trail with, with clouds of wrath that threaten you hanging over your head, whistling in the dark, as we sometimes say. Now look at the text again with me, please, and notice how, how Paul says in a couple of different ways that God's judgment is inescapable. He says, first of all, there is no excuse. This is the second time he has spoken these particular words. The first one came in chapter 1, verse 20. And again, it'd be easy to dismiss it and say, well, of course, the non-religious, the really ungodly, unrighteous people have no excuse before God. But now he says, verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, O person. And and it does seem like a, a little bit of a pejorative comment. Oh, you, we talk to each other in that way sometimes, don't we, when we want to make a point. Well, look at you. You know, if you hear that inflection, uh, this is not going to be a good conversation, at least for a few moments, right? Well, Paul's kind of trying to grab our attention in a similar way, saying, you, oh, oh, person, every one of you who judges, so who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to those uh, not, not from chapter 1, who reject God after seeing him in nature and, and say, no, I'm not grateful for God, not willing to give him glory, just dismiss him out of hand. No, he's talking to people who are of a very religious uh, commitment who set themselves above others to render a judicial verdict. That's the force of the word judge, you who judge others. Nobody likes this kind of judge, do we? Well, let's continue reading, though, and see what more Paul has to say. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And that's where we would be like, wait, wait a minute, Paul, what are you talking about? In the very specific Jewish context, their reverence for their traditions is not essentially from the idolatry of other pagan Gentiles. And what Paul is really driving at is there are issues in the heart that would actually be the truer read on the condition of the soul than this external piety. And that's what so many Jewish people hid behind. Well, we've got all the practices and the rituals and the traditions. And we'll dig into a few more of those in just a moment. Look at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You see, these are those who maintain an appearance of piety, who keep an outward reputation clean, but inside we're going to see they are a cauldron of boiling lust. And so he says a second time, verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And when he uses that word suppose, he is actually indicating that there is no escape. That's where he's going to take it for the self-righteous. And, and that word suppose has the idea, you formed an opinion false. You falsely suppose, we could, we could say that you will escape God's judgment. Now, why would Jews in particular in Paul's day have been of the opinion that they might escape God's judgment even though they weren't as perfect as they tried to appear to be? Well, in that day, they were not only as Jewish people giving themselves to the Torah and the other Old Testament prophecies, there's a whole library of religious writings that were available to them along with the oral traditions that had been passed down uh, through the scribes and Pharisees. One of those books uh, that would have been 
well-known and, and probably well-read, at least among Jewish scholars, is titled The, the Wisdom of Solomon. It's not a part of the Bible. Uh, it, it is not considered to be uh, canonical. That'd be the formal term. We might even say it is apocryphal. So it, it is a book, though, that may give us a little understanding of, of the kinds of opinions uh, or suppositions that Paul was addressing. And as you can read on the screen, after uh, one, one author notes that after a long expose of Gentile idolatry and sins in chapters 11 through 14, the author of this particular book goes on to say, but thou, our God, art kind and true, patient and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. Isn't it interesting, on the one hand, they're all about keeping up the, the, appearance, the appearance before one another, maintaining the outward reputation, yet if, if there is sin in there, and I'm not going to say there is, but, and, and we all know there is, but we're gods, we're in a special relationship with him. This may be an example of the very kind of thinking that Paul is getting to when he says, do, do you really suppose you will escape God's judgment? Whereas Paul will clearly state, and, and emphatically so, in chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. Here's the second thing, there is no escape. As an explanation of this, no escape, so the religious falsely suppose they will escape God's judgment. Here's a second thought for that. They foolishly presume upon God's kindness. Look at verse 4. Do you presume on the riches, the abundance of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And the word presume has really kind of a, a negative motion, uh, a, a direction with it, as if to say, you know, you, you actually kind of scorn God's kindness. And there are many people today who would hear uh, a letter like Paul's describing the wrath of God that's already on us and the greater wrath that is to come and say, nah. Yeah, I've lived, you know, 54 years in my own life and yeah, it's rough right now, but this wrath of God thing, pfft. And Paul is actually laying out for us that God is practicing, demonstrating, if you will, kindness as he forbears, as he delays the coming judgment. Why would God do that? Because he's not willing that any should perish. He's giving time for the nations of the earth and individuals like you and me to believe th this gospel record and to repent of our sins and to turn in faith. He's holding back the tide, the tidal wave of wrath that is boiling at this moment and will come against the children of men. The reality is by our sin, we continually pro provoke God to his face, yet patiently he demonstrates his kindness to us as he delays that judgment. It's judgment that we deserve for our sin. And we should not be so foolish as to equate the delay of his righteous judgment with our escape from it. And I fear some of you have that kind of thinking right now. Well, because I haven't seen a really bad outbreaking of God's wrath up to this point in my life, why would I think that one is coming? Because he tells you one is coming. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Isn't it curious that it, it, as he speaks to the very religious people, I mean those who are devout in their faith, that he actually addresses hardness of heart and impenitence. And you know self-righteous religion always produces hardness of heart. It always produces that sense of, I'm not going to repent. 
There's another apocryphal book that may illuminate some of, again, of, of what Paul was addressing in the Psalms of Solomon, uh, chapter nine, verse five. The one who performs righteousness stores up life for himself before the Lord. And these aren't the only writers who were setting uh, ideas like this on paper. It continues right up to this very day. There are many who say, well, you know, if you do enough good works, they'll outweigh the bad works, and in the end, you'll be okay. Work hard enough, obediently enough, faithfully enough, you'll be okay. So we have variations of this one sentence even up to this point. The one who performs righteousness stores up life for himself before the Lord. But look at what Paul says. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, and we could insert, because again, in that Jewish context, despite your ritual observance of all these laws and all of these ceremonies and, and worship services and feast days and feast weeks, you are actually storing up wrath for yourself. Can you fathom that? Self-righteousness will always make the heart hard. Self-righteousness can't repent because self-righteousness can't admit its failings, its sin. I pause and ask the question, when was the last time that you humbly, honestly, transparently before God, first of all, said, please forgive me, I have sinned against you. Those words that came out of my mouth were evil. God, have mercy on me. Those thoughts that I formed, I didn't even speak them. No one else knows but you and me, God, but those thoughts were offensive and wicked. Please forgive me. Can you remember the last time? And may I say, if you can't remember the last time that you begged for God's forgiveness and mercy, this would be the moment to do it. I mean, don't even wait until the end of the service, but you bow your heart before God and say, I am a hard-hearted, impenitent person. Second question, when was the last time you asked somebody near you to forgive you? Because you know we all sin against each other. Marriage, family, coworkers. And again, if you can't remember the last time that you actually turned to somebody who lives in proximity to you and said straight up, please forgive me. That was so wrong when I said, or I shouldn't have responded that way, or I shouldn't have ignored you in that way. If you can't remember the last time, this is the moment to go ahead and think back and plan for it. Hardness of heart, impenitence are characteristics of self-righteous people. And the person who continues in this self-righteousness is actually storing up wrath. Now, let's look at uh, verses six through 16. Uh, Paul is actually gonna describe the nature of God's judgment, and so we're gonna see, I think the big heading would be God's, God's judgment is fair. And there's some particular aspects of it. First of all, his judgment is individual. Look again at verse six. He will render to each one according to his works. Probably a direct quotation, either from Psalm 62 or, or Proverbs 24. But there are two scenarios that Paul begins to set before us. And if you notice, verses seven, eight, nine, and 10 are actually put together in, in a, a neat little literary device we call a chiasmus, big whoop, right? Well, so what it means is this. Paul's gonna talk about option A, and then he's gonna talk about option B, and then he's gonna talk about, or, or describe option B in a secondary way, so we might say B1, B2, and then he's gonna come back to option A, A2. And you, you literary people, you're all over this right now going, oh, that's cool. And the rest of you are like, can you get on with the message? Yes, I will. So let's read verse seven. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Option A. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's scenario B. That's terrifying. But he's going to develop that even further in verse 9. There will be not only wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now back to option A. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. I think it's important for us to recognize that his point is not that we are saved by our works, but that we are judged by our works because they reveal the underlying heart attitude. And unless you begin to wrongly conclude that, well, he just offered us option A, and if I work really hard there over my lifetime, then he says straight up, right? I mean, there's a way for us to experience glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. We'll concede the fact that that option opens up, but I'm gonna suggest to you on the basis of the scriptures, that it's hypothetical. And I say that in part, again, because the big picture where we are headed in all of this comes in chapter three and verses nine through 20 where Paul will shut the door on any of us who would think that our righteousness is enough. And he will say in verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified. So you can try to talk yourself into a scenario where maybe I could be the exception to the rule, but that's a false opinion. It's not going to happen. Here's a second point, verse 11. God's judgment is impartial. God shows no partiality. He does not favor one individual over another, saying, you know what? You've really ticked me off in your lifetime, so no, no grace for you. You, on the other hand, you worked really hard, and you know, you've kind of had a tough life, so I'll, yeah, I'll fudge some of my own rules. Make an exception. He doesn't look at one group over another group and say, they're kind of my, you know, teacher's pet group. No, his, his judgment is impartial. Individual, impartial, and number three, it is just. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish. That's a devastating word that speaks of eternal condemnation and judgment. They will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Do you see the two groups? We've been talking about non-religious and religious, Jew, or, or I should put Gentile over here, and, and Jew, those who say no to God outright, and those who say uh, yes to God, but God on my own terms, God of my own creation, the God that makes me feel good. The Jews, as one author notes, believe that doing the law or perhaps the intent to do the law would lead to final salvation. But Paul affirms the principle that doing the law, while he affirms the principle that doing the law can lead to salvation, he denies, first of all, that anyone could ever do that. And number two, that Jews can depend on their covenant relationship to shield them from the consequence of this failure is also an error. So let's compare these two different groups. All of sin, that's the big heading, some without the law, some under the law. Well, those who've sinned, and, and that doesn't mean like lawlessness, they've sinned in that way. It just means that they didn't have access to this. They, they never read the Ten Commandments, never studied any of the commands of God, but they're still accountable to it. And that's why they will perish apart from the law. Then on the other side, you have the religious, specifically the Jews, who have access to the word of God. They know his commandments. They will be judged according to that knowledge. But look at what he says about those without the law. By nature, 
as we continue reading, verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Where, where did it come from? They didn't open the word of God and, and read and then go, oh, God says thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. But what, what's going on there? Look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That's the, that's the thumbprint of the creator. I've been thinking how much of our social unrest is really tied to this very truth. Who told us that it's such a bad thing to exploit the weak or the disadvantaged? Did we just all decide? Are we products of multiple generations? I mean, is it just a testimony to the fact that enough of us had parents and grandparents who said, don't do bad stuff to other people? It goes deeper than that. It is the testimony of the creator himself who has imprinted the law on our hearts. Now notice the second group though. Paul really kind of doubles down and says if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law as opposed to your non-religious friend. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide, and, and that was a point of spiritual pride for them. Like, we have the law of God. We have the tradition of our elders. We have uh, the, the, the extra-biblical writings that tell us so much more. We are the light to those who are in darkness. We are the instructors of the foolish and teacher of children. And so Paul just kind of puts this whole resume out before him. And remember, he, can, he knows how they think because he was at that very point before his conversion. And when he uses that word boast, it has the idea of showing off verbally. Again, that's at the heart of self-righteousness. It's always about a show. Because for one thing, we're always trying to improve our standing before God, and, and that means we have to improve our standing before one another, and we dare not show any weakness or any flaws. And so, well, of course you're going to boast in God, but is it really boasting in God, or is it boasting in the privileges that come from God? I think it's the latter. They were boasting in the privileges of their religion because we know from what Paul will go on to say that the evidence from the coming from their heart is that they don't really have a relationship with God himself. It reminds me of Jeremiah's very famous sermon in his Old Testament prophecy. It's called the Temple Sermon. And in the days of Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet, as he was one of the last of a line of prophets who had pled with Israel, please repent, turn from your sin, don't continue to worship idols, don't commit, continue to sin in such grievous ways, come back to God, return, return, return. That was the message over and over again. They continued to run to the traditions that they had enjoyed, uh, the, the sacred ceremonies they, they participated in, and the temple itself. And he addresses that in Jeremiah 7, and in those days leading up to, to Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile, the people still refused to hear the warnings of prophets like Jeremiah as God called them to repent. And you know how they soothed their guilty consciences? They had a little mantra, and it's repeated in verse 4, and over and over they would say to Jeremiah, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They'd point to an actual building, though they themselves were full of corruption, of self-righteousness, of immorality, 
immorality and of faithlessness, and they would look at that beautiful structure that Solomon had erected so many decades before and, and basically soothe their souls with the thought that as long as that temple is standing, we are good. Their faith was in the facade of that building. And you know, there's a tendency in all of us to put our faith in facades of our own making. And so we look at one another and, you know, as long as we, you know, shower and comb our hair and dress decently and we don't use too many bad words at least and, you know, the facade is intact, we are good. The great tragedy is that while Solomon's temple stood for at least a few more years, the souls of these individuals were crumbling under the weight of their sin. Well, look at verse 21 of Romans 2. Sorry, no, let's look at Jeremiah 7, 8, and 10, and then we'll go back to verse 21. I want you to see some parallels here. This was Jeremiah's response. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Why would those words have no power? That's what avail has to do, no, no benefit. Well, here's why. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all those abominations? It'd be like if you come to church every single week, and you bring your Bible, and you sing the songs, and, and you pay attention you know, while the word is being taught, and you even serve and, and do some of those other external things, but then in all those in-between times, you are just loading up on, on sin of all kinds. And you can say, as the Israelites were, well, we are delivered. We have the temple of the Lord. God's not delivering through that. Now let's go to Romans 2, verse 21. It, because there's, there's great shame that Paul speaks of. You then who teach, do you te- not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? So he lists stealing, adultery, and then robbing temples, which are all examples of just grievous law-breaking. And he says in verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And he grabs one of the Old Testament passages they knew well and says, you know, you, you want to love this passage and sing it on Sabbath and, and hear it read and all that, but you don't keep it. And all this culminates as he moves into verse 25, and, and we, we really could say this is the closing argument. I only have verses 28 and 29 on the screen, but this is, this is that section as I was reading, you're probably like, what, what is all this about circumcision and uncircumcision and this, that, and the other? Well, here's, here's a real brief description. Remember, in the Old Testament, circumcision was first given to Abraham as a covenant sign of God's faithfulness, God's promise to bless. And it, and it marked Abraham and all of his descendants as the specially blessed ones of God. But as humans tend to do, rather than Rather than keeping the symbol in its proper place as a sign of God's faithfulness and serving God in obedience and, and love and gratitude and all of that, the sign became the big thing. So as long as you had the sign, you're good. Didn't matter how you lived your life, didn't matter how you thought. So a New Testament parallel, I won't say equivalent, but a parallel would be baptism. That's our present day sign. And by the way, we're going to have baptism. Matt's going to announce that. It's coming up in a few weeks, and I know some of you are really eager for that. But it'd be like you going through baptism, but, but having no life change, no transformation, but you keep going, well, I was baptized. Yeah, but you're a serial adulterer. I was baptized. 
but you cheat on your income taxes every year. And you siphon off a little petty cash from work. You're a thief. But I was baptized. I was hanging out with you and just like vile language came flowing out of your heart. I couldn't believe the way you talked to your spouse, your family, to me as your friend. But I was baptized. See, that's what's going on. So the Jews are saying, well, we were circumcised. And and so Paul's going to drive this thing all the way. Look at verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. What? Wait a second. Time out, Paul. I mean, we've got the genealogical records where I can show you, like, my father and his father and, you know, granddaddy and all the way back. I mean, we were, we were born of a particular tribe in Israel. I know where I'm come from. I am a Jew. I've got the DNA to prove it. And he's like, I'm not talking about physical DNA. I'm talking about spiritual realities. So that's where Paul is going with this. Look at this. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. The people of God are, are marked by something inward. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. He's driven this thing all the way back to Deuteronomy. And again, I know this is a little deep and a little heavy right now, but it was in Deuteronomy where God was, was, was uh, reinforcing the covenant that he had made, first with Abraham and then with the Israelites as they were delivered from Egypt. And he talks about circumcision again, but in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, he talks about being circumcised in your heart, the transformation that has to happen. And so he reminds his people then, and Paul's reminding the religious people now that true religion before God is is not a matter of externals and outward things. It's a matter of the heart. And then he says, by the spirit, not by the letter. That is the letter of the law. And if you want to live your life by the letter of the law, like, okay, I'll start with the Ten Commandments. As long as I keep all of those, I'm okay. And then we'll move out to, you know, some of the other several hundred commands that are in the Bible. And I'm going to work really hard to keep it. That's living by the letter. And Paul says, you can't do it. And so what Paul is really trying to drive us to is chapter 3, verse 20. I mean, he, he's just, he is dismantling every argument we would raise to say, I'm, I'm good. And some, just to go back to chapter 1 for a second, will basically like try to say, no, there's no God. And Paul says, uh, because that group is ungrateful and not willing to give God glory, he actually hands them over to their desires. Remember, we talked about that downward spiral last week that leads into greater and greater spiritual darkness and foolishness. It's catastrophic. And now he's turned to the really religious who would say, you know, I'm I'm sure glad I'm not in that non-religious crowd, but we got a good thing going here, and the law is our pathway to glory. The law is our pathway to heaven. The law is the pathway to eternal life. And Paul says, no, it is not. You're storing up wrath. But it's all this bad news has to become reality to us or else there won't be relief when we get to the gospel. In the climactic moment, which we will get to, God willing, in two weeks when, when Kristen and I return uh, from our trip and I can, I can resume the series in Romans, will be chapter three, verse 20, where he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now that seems like really bad news, but that's actually gonna position us for the best news ever. So let's, let's make a few summary conclusions, and they are devastating. First of all, all are without excuse. All are facing God's judgment. All are storing up wrath, and all are in need of a righteousness we don't have. I can't close in prayer here. Do you know why? 
because even though I'm not gonna preach it in its fullness, you need to hear the good news. I need to hear it. Because if that's the point we're left at, we, we should quickly go home, enjoy whatever time we have left, live the fullest, enjoy your relationships, make as much money as you can, take those dream vacations, because hell is coming. But that's not where God leaves us. And if you're here this morning saying, well, what hope is there? Because if non-religious and religious people alike are under wrath, what is the hope? Well, remember I told you last week, we're down in that dark valley underneath the clouds, but in the distance, there's this glorious summit of gospel truth that stands in the brilliant sunlight of an open sky of truth. And what is that glorious truth? Well, Romans 3, verses 21 and 22, now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, or which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is, there is a righteousness that you and I need. Can't earn it, can't work for it, you'll never deserve it, but you can access it by faith in Jesus Christ. So we do come to a place, though, and ask a really important question, where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ today? Are you trying to earn your way into his favor, trying to earn your way into eternal life? looking to your religious rituals and the traditions that have been handed down to you and with all sincerity and earnestness. I know that, that many work hard and yet are you willing to believe God's word over all of that to say by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And if you're willing to abandon all of that and come to him in just simple, straight up childlike faith, there really is good news for you. I will ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. We are gonna pray again here, but I wanna give you time to reflect. Would you guard your heart against dismissing the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you may feel at this moment? And if you are saying within your soul, oh, I know I'm not perfectly righteous. Oh, that's a gift from God that you see that. Are you willing to look to Jesus? the one who bore your sin in his body on the cross? Are you willing to renounce all of that sin, to seek his forgiveness, to ask him to cleanse you from all of that unrighteousness and to gift you the righteousness of Christ himself? This is the glory of the gospel. He doesn't merely forgive your sins to turn around and say, now go obey and earn it, earn the rest of it. No, he says, I will take all of your sin and will forgive it and I will declare you to be righteous for Christ's sake. I will gift you a perfect record of righteousness for Christ. Father, as our hearts are bowed before you and we come to the end of this portion of Romans, we recognize that our sin is far greater than we would ever want to admit and there's not one of us in this room that deserves your forgiveness, that deserves eternal life. But here we are, recipients of your abundant kindness, your forbearance and patience, and we marvel. And as we say thank you and turn our eyes to you, the living God, we ask that you would show mercy to us Take us from where we are and transform us into what we ought to be. Just please don't let us go our own way. 
We tremble to think of coming wrath. We tremble to think that we would receive personally what we have actually deserved. But, oh Lord God, for Christ's sake, there is hope. So give that understanding, give that hope to everyone here. And out of that experience of your grace and your forgiveness, move and motivate everyone here to live in deep gratitude, in joy, in confidence, in expectations, in expectation, in holiness for Christ's sake. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.